Today is a very important day in the life of our church, in the life of my family, and the lives of these two young people sitting before us, Andrew and Jane Lovett, as he is ordained into the deacon ministry of Calvary Baptist Church and the deacon ministry overall. The ordination of deacons is not only a necessary function of the local church, but it's a very special honor to be bestowed upon a man. Andrew, to be ordained a deacon means that the church has noticed your Christian witness and has put confidence in you as a special leader for life. The role of deacon is one which is exclusive to the church. The word diakonia in the Greek from which, we, which the word deacon in English comes literally means servant. And you must never forget, Andrew, that above all else, you are being chosen to serve Christ and his church. And in particular, the Calvary Baptist Church family. You will partner with your pastor to strengthen and lead this church to accomplish all that the Lord has called us to do. You know, when when the pastor and deacons have a healthy ministry relationship, and we do, then the church is healthy. When the pastor and deacons are at odds, the church is unhealthy. So I thank God for the wonderful relationship I have with the deacons of this church. I really love them. I cherish that relationship. I love those deacons with whom I pray and serve. And this is one of the reasons I believe at Calvary through these years that we've been blessed with peace. So as you begin this new ministry, I want all of us to look at the Word of God and see what the Scriptures say about the important place that deacons hold in the life and ministry of the local church. I'll be using two passages of Scripture, one from Acts chapter 6 and the other from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And although this is a message and focuses on deacons, I want you to know that it is good and relevant for every child of God. And I think you'll see that as we go through this passage to get these passages together. Let's pray for just a moment. Thank you, Father, as we look this morning at the deacon mission. Lord, I just want to pray for Andrew and Jane that you will help them, Lord, because uh, they're entering this together. And Lord, as, you've, as we lay hands on Andrew today, I just pray, God, that uh, he not only will feel the great weight of responsibility that's being put upon him, but also the great joy, the great privilege we have in knowing and serving you. And I pray, God, that all of us here together, we'd examine our own lives. Lord, what's good for a pastor, what's good for a deacon is good for everybody in the body of Christ. And I pray that we'll search our hearts and we'll make sure that we are always pleasing our Heavenly Father. We want you, Lord. You're the, your Holy Spirit is like the breath we breathe. I pray that you'll just take over now, Lord. And teach us something, every one of us something today from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first place we're going to look is in Acts chapter 6. As we think about the deacon mission. Now, in this passage, the church was young. Remember, what was the city where the, where the church was born? What was it? Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem. The church was born on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and infilled, baptized, infilled those first believers. That's where the church was born. They were gathered in uh, Jerusalem. And there's where they stayed. Thousands upon thousands of people had been saved. They'd turned to faith in Christ. And they were all there in Jerusalem. And they were led by the apostles who were personally 
commissioned by Jesus. An apostle was someone who was personally commissioned by Jesus. Now we call them disciples when Jesus first called them. But after we move into the New Testament, after Jesus ascended into heaven, they begin to be called the twelve or apostles. And so these apostles who had been personally commissioned by Jesus, Peter, James, John, all of them, those apostles had to teach that new church the Word of God. How the Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, the New Testament had not been written yet. It'd be decades before it was written. So the only, the only teaching you had was the authoritative teaching was coming from those apostles. Now, this was an infant church. And as an infant needs a lot of food, they needed a lot of food, a lot of nurturing. It was a needy church. They had a lot of needs. They had a lot of spiritual immaturity, and they had to grow. And so there was a problem that arose. And we know that happens, right? I mean, there's problems, problems, problems everywhere. So it happened among these, these people that loved Jesus. Verse 1, Acts chapter 6. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was doing what? What's that word? Multiply. Did it say they were being added? No, they were multiplying. You know, multiplying is more than addition, right? So it was growing fast. When the number of the, of the disciples was multiplying. Disciples here, that's talking about the followers of Jesus. People that were putting their faith in Jesus. When the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we don't know how long it had been. Maybe it had been like five years since Jesus had left this earth. But the church had increased so greatly. I mean, there were tens of thousands of people that had turned to faith in Christ there in Jerusalem. Two, two groups of people are mentioned here in this, among these, these thousands of people. The, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. The Hebrews, they were the Jews who spoke Hebrew from a Hebrew culture and background. The Hellenists were Jews who spoke Greek. You know, the word for Greece, the ancient word was Hellas. That's what Greece was, Hellas. And the Hellenists were those who spoke Greece, Greek. Now, remember, back then in the 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great, he conquered most of the known world and when he conquered an area, a whole, you know, a whole nation, he brought his Greek culture. He was Macedonian, but he brought the Greek culture into that area. The Jews in, just, in Jerusalem spoke both Greek and Hebrew. In fact, they used a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And that's also why most of the New Testament is written in Greek. So at the time of Acts 6, there were Jews in Jerusalem who spoke Hebrew and, their cousin, and, and, and its cousin Aramaic, so Hebrew and Aramaic, different dialect, and the Jew, there were Jews who spoke Greek. Now probably the Greek-speaking Jews were those who had come to Jerusalem from outside Palestine. Remember, Jews have been being dispersed ever since they've been in the world, you know, really. And there were a lot of them that had been dispersed and they were in other places. But 
At that time, many of the Jews would want to come home to Jerusalem when they got older so they could die in Jerusalem. And when their men died, the widows would have it hard. They were also orphans there. So they needed a lot of help, even with the basic essentials of life like food. There was a need in Acts 6. There were these two main groups in believers. Of, belie- uh, of believers, these were Christians, remember? Hebrew-speaking Christians and Greek-speaking Christians. Hebrew-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. But here's the thing. Just like birds of a feather flock together, people who speak the same language usually flock together, right? And so those who were speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, they were meeting together, and they, they had their synagogues, and those who spoke Greek... They had their synagogues and they met together. And so even though they were all disciples, Christians, yet they were meeting in different places. And and perhaps this is what, what led to the problem. The problem. For some reason, the Hellenist widows, the Greek speaking widows, were not getting, were being neglected in the daily distribution. It says, let me tell you what that means. Judaism. The Jewish religion had already, already had a double system of distributing food to widows and orphans. And the church seems to have continued that. For, for resident Jews, Friday was the day to receive money. Widows received money for a two-week supply of food, or about 14 meals. Transient and non-resident Jews, people who had just come, or, or non-residents, were they, their food came in a daily supply of food and drink. Not money, but food and drink delivered from house to house wherever the needy were staying. Now, what was wrong with the daily distribution of food? Well, the, something, something happened in the coordination of it on the daily distribution. And the Hellenist-speaking Jews complained to the Hebrew-speaking Jews who were obviously responsible for the distribution. Look at verses 2 through 4. Then the twelve, there was a problem. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we, the apostles, will give ourselves continually to what? Are you with me? To what? Prayer and the what? Ministry of the what? Word. The ministry of the Word of God. The responsibility for leadership in that church was with the apostles. They were the leaders of the church. They had the authority. They had been personally commissioned by Jesus. And there were really only 12 true apostles. Remember about Judas. He really wasn't a true apostle. He was not an apostle at all. He killed himself back when they were called disciples. Judas, Jesus said of Judas, he said, I've chosen 12 of you, but one is a devil. So he wasn't really a true disciple. But then came Paul on the road to Damascus to, to make up the 12th. I know they chose Matthias through drawing straws, but that's, 
But Paul was the 12th real disciple and those tw- or apostle. And these 12 apostles had the ultimate responsibility for leading the church. But they did not do it alone. Those apostles did not go from house to house and serve food to those in need. They had a lot of people, a lot of volunteers going out and distributing the food. They have boots on the ground. And that's the way it is in our church. You know, as a pastor, I do a whole lot of things. I've always worked hard all my life, whatever I did. But I work hard for you because I love you. I love this church. I want this church to be strong and grow and such as that. I do that. But I don't do it alone. Many of you are involved in the life and ministry of this church. I can administrate as a pastor should. And the apostles did that. But it takes all of us working together to keep this ministry going and moving forward. From children to seniors, from office work to inside work to outside work. Anything we do is a ministry, it is important, it is needed, and it needs volunteers to do it. But in this particular situation, it was moving so fast. Remember, it wasn't adding, it was doing what? Multiplying. And multiplying, the thing was booming. It was exploding with people turning to Jesus. Because you see, Jesus taught a message of love and grace. Jesus' message was one of hope. It wasn't one of, of, of just despair and gloom. That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees could quote all these verses of Scripture. And they could talk to the people. But it was Jesus and his disciples that talked about hope. God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, so the people wanted that. Wanted that. They wanted the word that would encourage and strengthen their lives. So there was a problem. And the apostles saw a problem. And it was a Listen, this was not a a spiritual problem of somebody didn't want the Greek-speaking Jews to have food. We're going to starve them to death. That wasn't the problem in the church. Like many problems churches have, it was a problem of, of some material thing. And it was food. It was an important problem. That had to do with a, an oversight, a misunderstanding. Has anybody ever misjudged you Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever had anybody come down on you? They didn't understand what you were trying to do or what you were saying. And they misunderstood and they got real mad about it. Maybe maybe severed the relationship. And that's what was happening here. Nobody was trying to starve anybody. There was just a problem. There were so many people and not enough hands To distribute the food. So what did the apostles do? Well, let me tell you. The apostles said to the church, You choose seven men. See that? You choose, you seek out from among you, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. That's what happens here, folks. That's really, that's what happens here. I, people say, Pastor, I see a need. I say, can you do something about it? 
Yeah, I think so. What's your idea? They tell me. I said, then do it. Then get, let's get it done. Because there's a little thing that is missing. We need something done. At the end of the year, the nominating committee gets together and they put down a whole list of people who, are, who have said, I will teach, I will serve, I will lead. You're not, listen, you're not signing up to be an intellect. You're signing up to put boots on the ground. That's what, that's what we do. That's what needed to happen here. They need more feet. They need more hands. And what happened? The church chose those seven because the apostles... The apostles needed help. And what did they, they did not listen. And they did not appoint those seven, listen with me, to carry food to the houses. They appointed those seven to coordinate and oversee that ministry. They were chosen by the church to work with the apostles, the leaders, to supervise the work of that important ministry. They were chosen to be servant leaders. The church chose them. And the apostles appointed them. And their important leadership in the church enabled the apostles, who were the leaders of the whole ministry, to spend the time they needed in prayer and study so they could teach the Word. Friends, I want to tell you something. I know people said, Pastor, you wear a lot of hats. I do. But there is no hat more important that I wear than the than the first teacher of the Word of God to you. That's right. The church cannot grow the way Christ wants it to grow unless it grows first spiritually. We must have a strong foundation in the Word to grow spiritually. Now, we must have... I spent a lot of time studying for you. We must have the Word preached from the pulpit and taught in the small groups so that we have a strong foundation of truth. Otherwise, you could just have a church, listen, like some churches perhaps are, that's an inch deep, exciting, an inch deep, and a mile wide. But they don't have the spiritual depth that they need. There are probably churches like that today. And so the members don't really know what God requires, what God says is right and wrong. That is a big problem we have today. We have a, not just a little organization problem in the world. We have a spiritual problem, a heart problem. There's a lot of people that don't know what is right and, what, and cannot differ, differentiate before, between what is right and what is wrong. And do you know why? Because they weren't taught that when they were growing up. I deal with children every day. There's a whole, listen, there are a lot of young people who do not realize that it's wrong for a man and woman to have sex outside marriage. They don't, they don't understand that. To live and sleep together and all that outside marriage. They don't, that two people are supposed to get married before they come together to make a home. There's a lot of people confused about that. Where did I learn about it growing up? From my parents, from my grandparents. So if it's not from my church, but if it's not taught there, who tells what's right and wrong? What about this? There's a lot of people confused about language. They think you can just. Say anything you want to say. You know? Anything. They, they use, their, their mouth is so filthy. They use foul language all the time. There's a lot of people confused about that. Because nobody taught them what was right and wrong. There's a lot of people confused about attending church. They say, you, you, can, you can be a Christian and never go to church. Really? Really? Maybe you need to understand what a Christian really is. See, that's the big problem today. The, that most people who do not 
most people do not really understand what it is to be a Christian. They don't understand what it is to be a real Christian. Number one, to be a real Christian, let me explain it to you. Number one, you must put your faith in Jesus as your only Savior. That's the first step. Put your faith in Jesus. You must believe that Jesus was God who put on flesh and came to the world to save those he created. You must believe that he, the sinless God, accepted the guilt that we have for our sins as his own, and he died on the cross as punishment for our sins so that we could be completely forgiven. You can't get in heaven unless all your sins are forgiven. And then he rose from the dead to give us eternal life. Eternal life to all who would receive him as their only Savior. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, read this with me, read it, ready? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's right out of the word. People don't know the word. To be saved means to be delivered from the penalty of our sins. And the eternal punishment of sin is is eternal death and judgment in, in hell, and we don't want that. God doesn't want that for us. To be a real Christian, secondly, you must follow Jesus Christ as your only Lord. You know, the only way to turn and follow Jesus is to turn your back on sin and ask Him for forgiveness and then start living a life that pleases Him. I can't have it both ways. I cannot say, I'm a Christian and then I'm just going to make my own rules and do what I feel like is right and, and what the culture says. Folks, a Christian is not just a, Christ, a Jesus believer. He is a Christ follower. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, Then He, Jesus, said to all of them, If anyone desires to come after me, are you with me? Let him do what? Deny himself. That's hard to do, isn't it? That's hard to do. But I don't feel like doing something. Well, uh, deny himself. I don't feel like doing this. I don't think this is wrong. I I believe I can do... uh, You're supposed to do what? Deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. A Christian is a disciple of Jesus. Learning from Jesus every day. Following Jesus every day. Making some mistakes but coming back to Jesus every day. It's not rocket science. You're either a Christian who follows Jesus or you're not a Christian. What's the difference? The difference is the Word of God. this This is from me. Let me tell you what the Word does. Bring it up on the screen. The Word of God draws a distinction between the saved and the lost. And the Word of God lived out in our lives is the evidence of our true faith in Jesus Christ. Now John told us this, and that was my my statement. Here's what John said, 1 John 3.10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are plain to see. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And so now we go back to Acts 6. Why was it so important for the church to choose those first deacons? Because it was important so that the apostles could make sure that they stuck with the word and studied it and taught it. The deacons took charge of the ministry of need so that the apostles could continue to teach the word. And when those deacons took charge of that ministry, notice what happened. Verses 5 through 7. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, the church. And they 
chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they, the apostles, set whom the church set before the apostles, and when the apostles had prayed and laid hands on them, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many even of the Jewish priests were obedient to the faith when the deacons carried out their mission the word of God spread souls were saved disciples were made the church grew and there was peace and love among God's people God used those deacons in a mighty way and he still does today while God calls the pastor I I had a call from God when I surrendered to ministry, it was a call. It was almost as real as if he had spoken it to me in, a, in thunder. I mean, I got the call because I really didn't want to be a pastor, just to be honest with you. But I had to lay myself aside and I had to hear God's call to enter the ministry and be a pastor. While God calls the pastor, just like Jesus called the apostles, the church calls the deacons to support the pastor in his ministry of leading the church in the way of God found in the Word of God. And that's why deacons are so important, because everything works together in the church body. Every part, every leader, every member, every person makes up the body. And what the pastor and deacons do best together is look after the spiritual health of the body. We do that by making sure the body stays in the Word, that we operate according to God's Word, and that we follow the great commission Jesus gave His church, and that's the mission of the deacon. Here's the deacon mission. Let's read it together. Ready? Go. To guard the Word of God in the body of Christ. There's your mission, Andrew. There's your mission, deacons. Andrew, I know you will. I've just watched you grow up to be a, a strong man of faith from the time you were just a little boy. You had a real love for God and His Word. I saw you do your devotions, I mean, from the time you were young. God will use what you've learned about Him and your relationship with Him, your spiritual knowledge as you assume the office of deacon, and the church will benefit from your love for God and His Word. Deacons must be men of the Word. Stephen and Philip were men of the Word. Stephen was so faithful to the gospel it cost him his life. God used Philip in the Jerusalem church, and then guess where Philip went? Down to Gaza. You heard of those places? Gaza. And Philip went down to Gaza and he led an Ethiopian official to faith in Jesus Christ. A deacon must be ready to teach the word. Every deacon should be a proclaimer of God's word. I don't mean your gift has to be teaching, but this word of Jesus is the only thing that can transform a life and change this world. His word has the power to save the one who is closest to hell. God's word is our spiritual strength. We should begin our day with the word and watch as God works out his word in our lives. It's amazing to me how that when I read something in the morning or sometime, then God will then through circumstances or people or whatever will confirm. He will show me what he, sh- he will reveal and confirm what he showed me in the morning in his word. We just have to watch for God. Watch for God. Listen to him and watch for God. So many have ignored God's word so long. They, they have no shame for their sin. They need to introduce, we need to introduce our world to God's word again. Because in an atmosphere of deception and lies, people really need a message of hope and truth. You need to share with people that you know what is truth. Look at what Peter said. Peter said this to all of us. Let's read it together. 
but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That means put him first. Ready? Do it again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're in dangerous place, folks, not just because of Israel, but because of what's happening in the world. The world is corrupt. I heard Dr. David Jeremiah this morning saying, do you know that six on the internet, 68% of all downloads is pornographic? 68%, all the downloads, pornographic. Do you know that 10% of those, 10%, that's a lot, children under 12. This is our world, folks. This is a dangerous place. As a deacon, Andrew, I hope you'll become more aware of the need people have for Christ. I pray God will use you and Jane in mighty ways as you enter this phase in your ministry. You're a remarkable young couple. I see God's hand upon you. We want you to grow more and more in your faith because the stronger you are in your faith and your ministry, the stronger we're going to be as a church. The only way you can carry out your mission to guard God's Word, you must know the Word and live the Word. And that's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3. Look at this. Paul, Paul talked about the, the deacons. He says, likewise the deacons. He says, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested and let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Paul says several things about deacons. The faithful deacon must be first reverent. He has respect for the holiness of God. Because of his love for God's holiness, the deacon wants to be like Jesus he wants to display Jesus before others by keeping himself pure, having a pure conscience, having pure words, having a pure lifestyle. He wants to be faithful in his worship. In the temple of Jerusalem, Isaiah heard the seraphim say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts as they worship the Almighty God. In heaven, John heard the angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Worship in the Old Testament, worship in heaven, and here we are in the New Testament. What should we be doing? Worshiping, getting ready. Worshiping the one who suffered in agony for us. Who left the worship of angels for the cries of crucify him. If Jesus did all that for us, then why wouldn't we want to worship him with every opportunity? A man should not be a deacon if he does not love to worship the Lord Jesus. It's a special privilege to serve the Lord as a deacon in the church. And that means a deacon should want to gather with the people who called him and worship the Lord together. The Hebrew writer said, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works among us. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The deacon is reverent, respectful of the God who saved him and the church who called him. The deacon is faithful. The faithful deacon must be blameless. The deacon has a character that cannot be criticized. He doesn't allow sin to stick to him. He patterns his life after Jesus and he tries to live a life that pleases Jesus. Paul said, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast a word of life. Children of God, what a privilege it is to be a child of God. To know the God who created us, to serve the Christ who died for us. I don't ever want to do anything that brings shame to my Lord. I want to be a son who makes my heavenly father proud. And that means I must live a life like Jesus, blameless. Next, thirdly, a deacon must, the faithful deacon must be submissive to Christ. The Lord Jesus is our example of submission. Paul said, let this mind be in you 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself, submitted to his Father's will. Jesus did everything according to his Father's will. Lord, when he's sweating drops, like, sweat almost like blood, he prayed to his father, take this cup from me, Father. But he said, nevertheless, not your will, mine be done. The deacon is first and foremost a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a slave to alcohol or any worldly thing, but he is controlled by the Holy Spirit. The deacon keeps his mind on Jesus, grateful for the price Jesus paid for him in his death on the cross. The deacon lives a life of victory, submitting himself to the spirit, control of the Holy Spirit. The deacon knows that while he's serving the church of Christ, he's serving Christ. Fourth, the faithful deacon must be respected. He must be respected in his home. In his world, yes, but certainly in his home. God ordained the husband to be the priest of his home. The priest of the home cares for the spiritual as well as the physical needs of his family. The deacon is respected by his wife and children. She builds him up. She doesn't tear him down. She watches what she says before others so that neither her husband nor the Lord would be embarrassed. That's very important because a wife who will not respect her husband, who will not submit to his leadership, disqualifies her husband as a deacon. And that's why God's Word talks about the character of a deacon's wife. Jane, listen to this, verse 11 and 12. He said, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Jane, you're going to share in Andrew's ministry as you faithfully serve the Lord with him. As a deacon's wife, you should love and support this church that has placed such confidence in both of you. You should want to serve alongside Andrew. And I commend you. You're serving already. I see you singing in the choir, teaching vacation Bible school. When you support your deacon husband and the church, the body of Christ is stronger. And then finally, as you serve faithfully in your office as deacon, you will be, the faithful deacon will be rewarded. The faithful deacon is rewarded in this life and in the life to come. Paul said in verse 13, For those who have served well as deacons, Obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Andrew, you'll never be able to outgive the Lord, and you know that. I've always been impressed with how you have given back to God. When you were making just a little bit of money, just cutting little yards around the neighborhood, I saw how you gave back 10% to the Lord or more, and you still do. In fact, every believer ought to be a giver. Jesus gave everything for us. He, he laid down His glory for us. As we give of our time our talents, our resources to support God's church and His kingdom work, the Lord will reward us in this life and in the life to come. Andrew, as a faithful deacon, you'll be rewarded in this life as God uses you to bless others and they grow in their faith. And you'll be rewarded in heaven because Jesus will one day give you a crown of faithfulness when you have completed all that He's called you to do. Jesus will never forget your labor for Him. And I hope you never forget this important moment in your life. So Andrew, as a faithful deacon, you're going to follow today in a long line of godly men who loved God's Word. These men in this church who lay hands upon you today are men who have been used by God to keep His church in His Word. And Andrew, I want you to remember something. From this day forward, your witness becomes even more important because when we lay hands on you, you're, you're not just becoming a deacon for today or a few years. You're becoming a deacon for life. And, and son, as your father, 
Nothing could make me prouder than that. I mean, this is one of the proudest days of my life. All three of my sons, this church put confidence in my sons that they could be deacons. And your mother and I, we are so proud of you and proud of, of what's happening to you today. And this is a good day for you and Jane. And it's a good day for this church who loves you. Who loves you and has put confidence in you. I want you to, today to examine your own heart. The same things that God expects in a pastor and deacons. He expects in everyone who claims to follow Jesus. We're not going to sing, but I just want you to pray. Bow with me for a moment. How do you measure up to God's standard? Andrew's been challenged today, but what about you? Has the Holy Spirit said anything to you about your life or your future? Or your witness before others? Are you missing something? God doesn't make adjustments. We have to. Maybe you need Jesus as your Savior. Pray with me. Say, Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me for all my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and shed your blood and suffered in agony to pay for my sins. Jesus, please forgive me for all my sins in my past, present, and future. And Jesus, come into my life and be my Savior. Your Holy Spirit, I open my heart to your Holy Spirit. Come into my life and be my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Boy, if you prayed that prayer, that's the greatest thing you could ever do. You just start living for Jesus. And Christian, if God's challenged you because of your faith and there's something lacking in you, it's time to make that commitment to him right where you are and say, Jesus, I haven't been a real good son or daughter. I haven't been a faithful disciple a faithful follower of Jesus. I want to follow you, Jesus. I pray that you'll remove this thing that has been lacking in my life and fill me, Lord, with your Spirit. Take control of this area of my life that keeps me from being everything you want me to be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Andrew, will you stand and receive your charge?